We are continuing with the series in John, and we've reached John chapter 18. We're looking at the first 27 verses, and our title is Betrayed, Arrested, Abandoned, Denied, and Abused. So my goal today is to truly hear what God is saying to us in this passage and respond to it. We have three things in my plan. We're going to start by looking at this story of betrayal, arrest, abandonment and abuse in John 18. And then we're going to have four questions and then we're going to look at the core message of the passage and our response to it. So, first of all, a little overview of where we've been up to now in John, in very quick bird's eye view. John's Gospel falls into two halves. The first half is Jesus' public ministry, the teaching, the signs, miracles, uh, all of that stuff is in the first 12 chapters. And we call that the book of signs because John numbers the signs. At least he numbers the first two and they go up to seven. And then the second part is 13 through 21, which we call the book of glory, which we're in now. So let's just look at the book of glory. Begins with the meal in the upper room with the disciples. And it ends with a meal with the disciples on the beach. Between those two, we have a block of teaching, verses, chapters 14 through 17, new teaching from Jesus just to the disciples. Amazing teaching, which we finished last time with the prayer in John 17. And now we're launching into 18 through 20, which is arrest, crucifixion, and resurrection. So that's positioning ourselves, the beginning of chapter 18, of where we are in the big picture. And so, just a quick overview of what we did last time. Last time we talked about the scripture in um, the end of John 17. I'll just read it to you. Jesus ends by saying, verse 24, he says, Father, those that you gave me, I desire that where I am, they also may be with me, that they may see my glory. This is Jesus' desire, that we are the ones he loves and he wants us to be with him in glory. The ones that you gave me, because you've loved me before the creation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even if the world does not know you, I know you. And these ones know that you sent me. I made known to these ones your name. And we saw how God's name is actually a shorthand for all that he's about, particularly love and justice. And God wants that, though, that undying love and his commitment to righteousness and justice to be, to be spread and people to understand really who he is. Because people misunderstand God. They just have such negative stories about God. And God says, if they really see who I am, they'll see it through love and through my disciples. And so he says, I made known to these ones your name, 
the disciples, and I will continue to make it known, so that the love with which you've loved me may be in them, and I may be in them. And so the goal that this love of God would be so in us that we would, we would be able to carry God's name to the world. So I summed that up by talking about our destiny uh, simply to receive and believe God's love. And having taken in this love, give it out in God's name, that we're a gift from the Father to Jesus, beloved companions for him, to be there forever with him. He gives our love back to the Father as a gift, to be revealers of God's self-giving love to the world and the universe. So the Father says, I want you to have this people to be with you, and they're a love gift from me. And Jesus says, but I want them to actually carry our love to the world. This is the highest expression of the Christian faith you will ever hear. This, our destiny. More than that, it is the highest point of human existence. And so last week, we, or it was two weeks ago, we looked at this challenge of what we're called into, which is extraordinary, which is just blows my mind to think of the destiny and the purpose that we're given to God. So, let's come then to today's passage. And uh, I want to look at the story now. And uh, as we're getting into the story, we're going to see some, some things in the story which uh, you'll, I'm sure you'll pick up on. We're going to see some institutional violence, some systemic oppression and injustice in this story. And as I was preparing, and this is just the next passage that we're doing in this long series, as I was preparing, I kept thinking, wow, this is interesting. I can see some parallels here. But, uh, but then it concerns me that we might be tempted to so read the passage through the lens of our own current experiences that we might miss actually what the passage is saying. And I'll come back to this in a moment. First of all, let's read the first part of today's passage. John 18. When he had said these things, so that was the, the they just finished the prayer and talking to the disciples, Jesus went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley. And that's a valley just one side of Jerusalem with a river running through it. There was an orchard there, and he and his disciples went to it, went into it. Now Judas, the one who betrayed him, knew the place too, because Jesus had met there many times with his disciples. This is heartbreaking. Like Judas, the reason that Judas can betray Jesus is because he knows him. He's been with him so many times. He knows how he behaves. And he knows this is where Jesus loved to go. This is heartbreaking that he should betray out of the, an intimate friendship. It was only because of his intimacy, of his friendship, that he would know exactly where Jesus was. This is heartbreaking. So Judas obtained a squad of soldiers and some officers of the chief priests and Pharisees. They came to the orchard with lanterns, and torches, and weapons. Then Jesus 
because he knew everything that was going to happen to him, came and asked them, Who are you looking for? They replied, Jesus the Nazarene. He told them, I am he. Now Judas, the one who betrayed him, was standing there with them. Now we know from the other Gospels that that Judas actually gave him a kiss as well. It doesn't mention that here. So when Jesus said to them, I am he, they retreated and fell to the ground. Now I think what's happening here is that um, it's very dark. They're in, they're in an orchard and they're so shocked um, that they kind of back away and fall over some tree roots or something like that. It's just like the shock. Um, they'd been told they were going to have to use weapons here. And What's happening here? Then Jesus asked them again, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus replied, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, let these men go. He said this to fulfill the word he had spoken. I have not lost a single one of those whom you gave me. So was it overkill for them to have weapons at this point? Well, we know, know of course, that it wasn't. It it was overkill because we know Jesus. But actually at that time, um, look at what Peter did. Um, Their understanding of Jesus was one who would need weapons to take. And we'll talk about this in just a moment. Um, So uh, uh, what was going on with Peter at this point? Well, let's just read this next bit with Peter. Um, I just want to note in verse 9, if you're looking for me, let these men go. And just to note how Jesus is thinking of them, even at this point, like his heart is of love, these disciples. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, poured it out and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. Now the servant's name was Malchus. But Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Am I not going to drink the cup the Father has given me? And later on, when he's speaking to Pilate, in the next chapter, he says, "My servant, my servants are not of this. This my kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, my servants would fight." And so, this is crucial uh, about what kind of person, what kind of kingdom that Jesus had. Now, I want to stop for a moment and talk about what's going on with Peter because I think it's more serious than often it's given credit for. People sometimes think, "Oh, he's a bit impetuous here," and then you know he denied Jesus because he was like overcome with fear well we know with Judas that Judas was aligned with the zealot movement the zealot movement was a movement in Judea that wanted to overthrow the Romans by force it was um, a a violent movement a terrorist movement um, and they had many uprisings the Romans often had to put them down Barabbas who Pilate offered to free, was actually a zealot, one of these people. Judas thought that Jesus was going to be in that mode. And when he realized he wasn't, that is when Judas stopped following Jesus and turned against him, because he thought Jesus was going to do that. In fact, a lot of the Jews did. They thought that this was, he was going to be the king that would release them from 
the Romans. And uh, we can see that Peter had this misconception at this point. And I'm going to suggest to you that actually, at this point, Peter was profoundly discouraged and even maybe questioning whether he was doing the right thing following Jesus. And the denials weren't simply coming out of fear, but maybe a bit of ambivalence that was coming in. And I think that this is important because Jesus prayed for Peter that that he would be kept from the devil because Satan wanted to sift him, it said. And Satan wanted to give him these temptations. And I think this is what's going on. But the amazing thing is, the wonderful thing is that he could not be turned by Satan because Jesus had prayed for him. And Jesus said, none shall pluck them from my hand. Nobody will be taken from my hand when I have hold of them. And so this is a, even though it can sound like um, a discouragement, yet sometimes Christians can have some severe doubts Really, really bad doubts. But we're not to be afraid of that because Jesus can bring us back from those doubts. And I think that's what's going on with Peter. It's interesting that these rebellions came to a head in AD 66 when there was a a huge uh, war between Rome and, and Judea which resulted in the temple being destroyed. And then there was the Ketos War in 115 to 117 AD, and uh, that was uh, that was brutal. As all of the all of the things the Romans did were brutal, but then the Romans persisted in like just being so um, viciously aggressive um, to the, the the Jews, and they would they would just be provocative, do things designed to anger them. Very just the way they treated them was building more and more resentment, and um, in. Uh, the year 132, there was an incredibly well-planned third rebellion by the Jews that was so successful to start off with that large numbers of Romans were killed. It was extremely well-planned. Large numbers were killed, and the Romans um, decided they were going to do whatever it takes. They moved six legions from other parts of the empire into Judea and six parts of six other legions, the incredibly concentrated force into this tiny land and they destroyed the Jews' armies. They they broke them down and they decided that never again would this happen and they did the most brutal um, ethnic destruction combined with religious destruction, banning Judaism, and they even renamed the country from Judea to Palestine um, because they wanted to expunge the name of the Jews. And it's still called Palestine to this day because the Romans renamed it. So that was the fallout from that. And uh, you can read, if you read, you can read the history if you're interested. It's absolutely quite tragic. But. Um, a lot of it's connected with the Roman brutality and the way that they would conduct themselves at this time. So um, this is the story here that we've read. Uh, let's, um, let me just read the next little bit here. Uh, then the squad of soldiers with the commanding officers and the officers of the Jewish leaders arrested Jesus and tied him up. They brought him first to Annas, For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. 
Now, it was Caiaphas who advised the Jewish leaders that it was to their advantage that one man die for the people. And, of course, he meant something different to that, but it turned out to be prophetic. So, uh, let's just pause for a minute. Um, So, the temptation is to read every passage in the Bible as if it was intended to be about our current events. And the problem with that is that if the story is not actually about them, then we'll not hear what the story is about. We'll not hear what's being said. God has spoken, and so we need to listen very carefully. Uh, Doing an expository series like I'm doing can help immensely in helping us to do this. Unfortunately, what many preachers do is they have a message on their heart, and it may be a very good message, but it's on their heart, and then they'll find some verses throughout scriptures to support it so that it sounds biblical. And the problem with that is it becomes very difficult for the congregation to assess, well, is that really what God is saying? Because you can take verses from random and say all kinds of things. So I want us to think of this as a conversation with God speaking to us through the scriptures. And we want, uh, when we're speaking, we want people to listen on our turn and actually hear what we're saying. And God is the same. He wants us to listen to him on his terms. And if, if he has something to say, we want to hear that. And having heard that, God's word is always relevant to whatever situation it is uh, and, and you know what we're going through at this time. So um, what I want to say then is that having, um, if we first hear what God is really, the point that's really being made in this passage um, and, and listen to what the, its agenda is, not our own agenda. What is God's agenda here, John's agenda. What is the message of the passage? First hear that, then once having heard that, we can then ask, how does this speak to our situation that we are in right now? That is the way we should honour it as being God's word. So that's what we're going to try and do. The temptation would be to make this passage primarily about institutional violence, about systemic oppression and injustice, which of course it does talk about. But then um, uh, it does say something about these things which we'll get to. I believe that the passage does speak to current issues, but only if we let it speak on its own terms first. So let's allow this passage to continue to speak to us now. Uh, Let's go on then to Peter's first denial. Verse 15. Simon Peter and another disciple followed them as they brought Jesus to Annas. Now the other disciple was acquainted with the high priest and he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. It's possible that that was actually John. Um, but But Peter was left out standing outside by the door. So the other disciple, who was acquainted with the high priest, came out and spoke to the servant girl who, was watch- who watched the door and brought Peter inside. The girl, who was the doorkeeper, said to Peter, You're not one of this man's disciples, are you? He replied, I'm not. I've highlighted Peter's words in red in this, by the way, and Jesus' words in green, just to help us see some of these points that I want to make. 
Now the servants and the guards were standing around a charcoal fire they had made, warming themselves because it was cold. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. While this was happening, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus replied, I have spoken publicly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple courts where all the Jewish people assembled together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard what I said. They know what I said. When Jesus had said this, one of the high priest's officers who stood nearby struck him on the face and said, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus replied, If I have said something wrong, confirm what is wrong. But if I spoke correctly, why strike me? Then Anna sent him still tied up to Caiaphas the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was standing in the courtyard, warming himself. They said to him, You aren't one of his disciples, are you? Peter denied it. I'm not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, Did I not see you in the orchard with him? Then Peter denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. We know, of course, Jesus had said he would deny him three times before the rooster crowed. So there is our passage, and... I'm not going to spend much more time with Peter. Peter comes up again in the last chapter of the book. We've already talked about him. Um, I'm going to talk in a, in a minute a little bit about this, this uh, discussion that's happening with Jesus' trial. Um, but what I'd like to do is to move on to our second point, which is, which is um, four questions. So we've talked about the story. I'd like to talk about these four questions and then we're going to end by looking at the core message of the passage and our response. So four questions. The first one is, should we be passive and not defend ourselves like Jesus? Should we be passive? And the second one is, what should the disciples have done at this point? Jesus says earlier on, you're all going to abandon me. So what should they have done? And then we're going to ask what John wants us to learn. What is the core message? And how are we to respond to that in our current situation? So one of the the things that um, is interesting to see is the prophecy in Isaiah 53 about Jesus' response. Uh, Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So the question really is, um, how do we behave when we're treated unfairly by authorities? And I want to be quite clear here that... um, I would say that the question, is this really the lesson? This is not the lesson we're intended 
to learn here. There is a branch of Christianity that would say that this is how we respond to abuse. Um, uh, Jesus, actually, when you look at what happened, Jesus wasn't dumb. What does it mean here that he was dumb? He opened not his mouth. Well, he did open his mouth. Well, he didn't open his mouth in self-defense, in saying, no, uh, I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is right, what you're saying is wrong. He opened his mouth to, to criticize their process, to talk about the injustice that was being done in the process. Jesus didn't want to get into the debate about um, what he'd said and what he hadn't said because that would have been just so futile. They knew very well what he said, and he wanted to highlight the injustice of what was being done, that he was innocent. And so, in fact, they never even talked about it. They didn't really want to talk about it. So, when uh, let's go back to our passage. Um, the high priest questioned Jesus, and he said, I've po- spoken publicly to the world. Imagine <clears throat> that there was somebody who'd... Um, uh, was uh, had particular views that they'd spoken on television many times. They'd done many broadcasts about these particular views. And they were being questioned on them, and somebody said, well, what is it that you've been saying on TV? And she says, well, you know, ask anybody. Like, it's public information. You, you know, what I've been saying is, is so public, we don't have to start debating whether I said it or not. And they were really trying to... Um, to uh, uh, to get around the issue here and to kind of construct something to trip him up on his own words. So what Jesus did here, which is very interesting, um, he he criticised the process here. He said, this isn't a fair process to be trying to ask me this. Because you're, well, he didn't say it, but actually they're trying to trip him up. When you're trying to ask me for evidence that is common knowledge, that's not a fair process. But then Jesus says, when they hit him across the face... He says, if I've said something wrong, confirm what is wrong, but if I've spoke correctly, why strike me? In other words, he's highlighting the, the injustice that has happened to him right then. So when it says that Jesus um, was dumb, the dumb was in terms of defending his own teaching. He didn't do that. Um, he, didn't, he didn't say, oh, I'm innocent, why are you doing this? I'm innocent. He didn't, he didn't say that. That was obvious that he was innocent. Uh, But what he did is he condemned their process. And later on, he said some other things to Pilate. So I want to say then that um, we go back to our questions, um, that uh, this, the lesson of this message is not that we should never answer back, never point out abuses by authorities. We should be completely silent when anything like this happens. And um, Jesus was verbally strong, as you can see that in that, in that passage. He was, he was actually um, quite clear and, uh, and pointed out the injustice that happened. Later on in Acts, the apostles never fought the authorities physically, but they, or they or encouraged people to do that, but they were very robust in their defence. The one of the stories, Paul at Philippi, when he was released from prison, well, there was the earthquake which released him from prison, um, and uh, he said, um, he, he then pointed out to them that he was a Roman citizen and they'd illegally 
beaten him and imprisoned him without a trial, which was illegal for a Roman citizen. And the authorities were very upset about this. And he said, no, I want them, the authorities, to come over here to the prison and release me. And he, he forced them to do that, um, and which really rubbed their noses in it because they were forced. Every, it was a public thing. Everybody could then see the injustice that had been done. So um, the, the disciples, the apostles, were robust in the way that they um, responded to this kind of thing. Um, so... Um, we have to understand that in some ways Jesus was a special case here because Jesus did not want to, Jesus wanted to highlight the injustice of it and partly he didn't raise the issue of his teaching because he wanted to be obvious to everybody that the thing he was being crucified for had not even been discussed. It had not even been, it had not even come up. And that was pretty clear. That was clear to Pilate. It was clear to other people that the injustice of this. So there was a particular plan Jesus had behind this. So um, the, the second question that I had is, what should the disciples have done in this situation? And what, what, how should they have responded in this? And um, I don't think this is the main purpose of the passage, but I think it is there in the passage, and we can pick it up, um, the, that, um, that the disciples should have been there at the trial. They should have risked their own lives to stand up for justice. And uh, Jesus you know, was abandoned. They should have been there. They should have said, we, he, is, he is our leader, and what you're doing is wrong. What you're doing is wrong. And... Um, but the Bible says they all forsook him. Uh, we think that John was there, but even John failed. The Bible says he forsook him because he didn't say anything. So I think it's reasonable to conclude that what they should have done was to stand up for the injustice that was happening, and they would have probably lost their lives as a result. That's, but they should have done that. So I want to say... Um, this is not intended to be, this passage here, is not intended to be a discourse on responding to violence. I don't think it's the purpose, but um, I believe that as a citizen, we sometimes do have to stand up for change. And even though the cost might be high for us, and I think this is implicit in the flow of the discussion of the disciples' role in this passage. And just as the disciples should have spoken against the injustice being done to Jesus, so we should speak out against the injustice we see in the world today. And right now, there is institutional racism, there is police brutality, and they are very wrong. God hates them, and we need to say that. Uh, in the email that I sent out in the newsletter this last Thursday, I included a 10-minute video from Toppy Colioso. Toppy is um, a, a friend of New Life Church. He's preached at New Life Church. He leads a, a, a large church in London, England. My daughter is part of that church. And um, he has uh, done a video of, of the church's response to uh, to institutional 
racism and, and violence. And uh, I sent it out because I think he can speak better than I can. Uh, but I urge you, if you've not seen that, I urge you to look at that in the newsletter this week and look at the suggestions that he makes in there about how we should respond to that. So going back to the outline for today, we've talked about the story. We've looked at four questions and we're going to end by looking at the core message of the passage in our response. Now I realise as I look at what I've done here, there's a little bit of overlap because the last of my questions, the last two of my questions really overlap with my third point. So the core message of this passage today. What does John want us to learn? What is the core message? I want to ask you to think and to feel what it must have been like for Jesus at this point. As we've been through John, we've seen John encouraging us to empathise with Jesus, encouraging us to see what Jesus is going through. We saw Jesus weeping. We saw other emotions in him. We've seen this, this last prayer as he prays, full of emotion for his disciples. John wants us to, to notice what is going on in Jesus. And a lot is happening here. So let's try and pick up on the points of what it's like for Jesus. He's betrayed, you know, by one of the twelve in one of the intimate places they used to gather. He is betrayed. And even though he knew it was going to happen, like it actually happened at that point. And then um, we see his care for his disciples. He's saying, don't arrest them. It's me you're after. And we can see something that's going on in there that his love for them is there, even at this time of threat to himself. Then we have abandonment. That It's not just that they, weren't, they were not arrested. They flee. It doesn't say in this passage, but, but uh, earlier on, Jesus says, what's going to happen? You're going to abandon me. And in other Gospels, it talks about them fleeing. So they abandon him. Then we have this unfair trial, this parody of a trial. And there, there are two trials described. The Jewish trial, which we've just seen here in this chapter. The next session is going to be the Roman trial, but just as unfair. So we have this unfair trial. And then we have this brutality that he's hit for making the statement, which is totally undeserved. And yet, these were the very people that he came, that he was about to die for. And as I was reading this through, this just, this just got me, this just brought me to tears. Because here's a Jesus, he's about to have to choose to die for these people. And this is the people, like it would be far easier if they kind of showed him a lot of love at the end and you know but he's even going to be dying for the some of the some of the jewish leaders we know were saved uh you know these are these are the people he's dying for we read at the beginning of john he came to his own yet his own people did not receive him and now he was going to die for them and um 
I just find this so moving to think of this. This, this is just that, that this is the way he's treated. Right at the point he's making a choice to suffer infinite agony. These very people he's going to die for are treating him like dirt. There's a brought to mind a verse in Romans 5. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. You know, sometimes one person will give their life for another because they're such a, a worthy person, they'll die for them. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And for me, this is the main takeaway of the passage. For me, this build-up to Jesus' supreme sacrifice, supreme sacrifice of love, a love he's been talking about for the last chapter, John 17, about how much he loves and he loves his own. At that point... They are the most unlovable people you could imagine. And so my takeaway, and this is my last slide for today, my takeaway is that we appreciate what it was like for Jesus to love at this moment. At this point, what was it like for him to love the world, to love humanity, as he's treated like this. And then the core of following Jesus is to show this kind of love ourselves. And I want to say that loving your enemies is the hardest task that any human can have. But I want to say that I believe this is the core message that we're going to see throughout this part of John. This does not in any way mean giving in and being soft. That might not be love at all. That is not what I'm saying at all. But the true love that Jesus demonstrated is the only thing that can ultimately break the power of darkness, of injustice and of oppression. That is the only thing that can do it. And so I want to... um, just give us a couple of practical things that we can do. The first is to suggest you get into a quiet place and ask Jesus what it was like for him at this point. Just do that. Just ask Jesus. Ask him to show you the love that he has in his heart. Show you what it's like to love your enemies. Just ask him to show you that. And then ask him to bring to your mind how his love could flow out of you in your life situation right now. To say, Jesus, you're in my heart and I want to express this love. And I understand that this this might have a cost. It might cost our lives. It might not look like a cozy kind of love, a lovey-dovey kind of love. But it's a love that ultimately loves our enemies. 
and is the love that shows God, the name of God to this world. It's not an easy message. But I want to leave that with you and I want to just pray right now that God would enable us to do this. Jesus, we are we are overwhelmed when we try and contemplate what it was like for you at that time. Lord, your love for us is just so wonderful. Lord, we thank you for the love because if you love us like that, it doesn't you still love us when we fall you still love us when we when we do things we shouldn't do because your love is greater than that and lord we thank you for this love which makes us feel so secure in your hand but jesus we pray that you would cause that love to flow out of us you would empower us and help us to understand in our life right now with the people we are surrounded with by and the opportunities that surround us what it looks like for each one of us to love as you loved in this revolutionary manner. We pray, Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would put that in us through your Holy Spirit. Amen.